with us. Welcome to the Arts Report for March the 30th uh, here on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming on the web too. Don't forget at CITR.ca. I'm your host, Adam Janusz, and this is your weekly source for arts and culture on the radio. On uh, this week's Arts Report, we've got uh, a slew of content that is um, has accidentally wound up being around books. So uh, Slam UBC is getting gearing up for a show next Wednesday, and uh, we'll not only hear about the event, but we'll get a little taste. We'll get a, a spoken word piece. We'll get a, a slam poem um, right on the show, which is going to be a lot of fun. And wait till I tell you what the name of the, the poem is. It's going to be very exciting. So stay tuned for that. Uh, what else? Uh, we're going to do a book review. That'll be fun. Megan Thomas from Discorder, our very own magazine here at CITR, will tell us about Cigar Box Banjo, which is about um, sort of the blues, blues rock uh, scene in, uh, in Canada and the U.S., um, from the 60s onward, and uh, the author actually just passed away in January of this year and talks about his, uh, his battle with cancer in the book, so that's interesting. Um, also, Brave New Playwrights is coming at you today. Actually, today until, I believe it's uh, Sunday. Today until Sunday. And we'd like to give you tickets to that. Um, so get your dialing fingers on the ready. Warm them up now. Give them some stretches. Um, and uh, we'll give you tickets a little bit later in the show. Two tickets for tomorrow. For tomorrow's, um, tomorrow's night of festivities. They're on every night. And there's so many shows um, that they actually alternate. So every day there's there's two nights there's two nights of programming this is what i'm trying to tell you uh so they alternate um yeah so you'll get a a taste of of at least uh, half of their huge program of uh, plays written by creative writing students at ubc how cool is that so fresh 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 um play writing for you and uh not really writer related not really word literature related at all but still interesting is uh we're going to look at bipolar disorder and uh, examine perhaps if there is an upside to it, um, which is kind of ironic because I guess bipolar disorder is all about being up and then down. So I guess we'll look at um, <laughs> the upside of it um, in the sense that um, creativity has been... What is that? Wow, that's never happened before. <laughs> oh my god, that completely freaked the crap out of me. Wow, is there a mute button on that thing? Wow. Um, okay. The, whoa. Where were we? <laughs> you want, if you want to throw the host of the arts report off, ring the phone. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, ooh, I'm gonna need a. I'm gonna need a minute to compose myself here. Okay. Um, wow. What was I just saying about? Uh, yeah, bipolar disorder. Okay. So that's later in the show as well. Ooh. I'm just gonna deep breath. <sighs> it's just a phone. It can't hurt me. It cannot hurt me. Not anymore. Um, right. Um, before we get on with the rest of the show, um, yeah, you know what it was? It was somebody who wants those tickets to brave new playwrights, and uh, they just got really excited and thought, now is the time to call. Sir or madam, now is not the time to call. 
because you will interrupt me and freak the crap out of me. So please, please wait until a little bit later. Um, before we get on with the rest of the show, I want to talk about a few shows that, uh, that I saw uh, last Wednesday and uh, Thursday that are still playing. And uh, yes, we covered them on last week's show. You can get the, the podcast right at catr.ca, uh, right under the blog post for today's Arts Report. It says, subscribe to the Arts Report podcast. And you can click right there and listen to last week's show because um, they were two great plays. On Wednesday night, I saw the last 15 seconds at uh, the Fire Hall, which is about a suicide bomber. And the the play explored the relationship and the sort of um, different issues, the intertwining issues and relationships between the suicide bomber and his family and also the victim of, or I guess one of the victims, uh, it was a hotel in Jordan that was bombed. And one of the victims was actually an uh, Arab and Muslim filmmaker who was famous all across the Arab world and was even famous in America for, doing, for producing the Halloween films. And so ironically, this sort of celebrity of, of, um, of modern uh, Islamic filmmaking uh, was killed by a suicide bomber. And so they took this, this interesting uh, tragedy and, and man, did they ever produce an incredible show with it. It was... It was one of those plays, I don't know if there's a fancy word for it, but it's, you know, it's the kind of play that's not explicitly, um, you know, it doesn't go from start to finish. It's, it's, it's kind of an exploratory thing that included multimedia where, you know, they take, there, there's a, a bit of dialogue and then they take a moment to, to express a feeling or a thought in the, from the last scene in, say, a dance. They do a dance or, or another scene, like a sort of flashback. And... It's only how many actors? One, two, three, four. It's five actors. Uh, some and and the women um, played both people's families. So the 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 three women played the family of the suicide bomber and the the filmmaker to kind of you know I guess you could say to make a point about how you know we all have family, we all have mothers, we all have um, we all have families that uh, really suffer the most. And uh, anyway, the show. The, the thing that struck me most about it was how unshakable their performances were. Like, these guys were so tight, and their characters were so strong, and, and their physicality was so smooth. Like, the, the efficiency of their movements, whether they were, they were dancing or just walking across the stage in character, it was so sharp. And I, and I talked to the d- director... He's the one we interviewed on last week's show. Um, I talked to him and, and a couple of the cast after the show, and apparently he wouldn't... in rehears- Rehearsal, in one of the early rehearsals, he wouldn't let them move. Like, he, he, was, he would say, come onto the stage. And he would say, no, 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 you're doing it wrong, go away. And then he'd make them come back. Okay, come back onto the stage. No, 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 you're walking wrong. And he made them just arrive on the stage a hundred times until they did it in a way that was efficient, clean, simple, and, you know, didn't waste uh, a single muscle twitch. And, man, it just it made it for a really engaging uh, experience to watch in terms of just the technical aspects, the acting. And then the story, too, was just uh, was gripping and heartbreaking. And <laughs> so heartbreaking that at the end it was hard to clap for them because, you know, the lights come up and they're all, like, in tears themselves because they just went through this epic performance. And then we're all in tears and the lights come up and we're like, oh, God, like, don't look at me. <laughs> you know, I'm still crying. You know, I wish I had a m- minute to compose myself just so I could give them a proper, you know, show my gratitude properly and clap. But 
Anyway, great show. And then the, the day after that, I saw Evelyn Strange, which was a was an awesome comedy, uh, comedy film noir style. And I thought they did a really great job of of kind of gently mocking the genre, gently mocking the that sort of fifties or or even older. You know, hey, I'm here for a high detective thing. You know, that kind of old school way of behaving, um, and that sort of Mad Men style as well. Um, they captured it really well. And just slightly to the point of mockery, but not so much where you're like, ah, oh, this is just cartoonish. But they did it just right, you know, where it, it, uh, it brought that era to life and then poked a little bit of fun at it. Because it is a comedy, after all. Um, yeah, had a lot of fun watching that. It was very cinematic, and, and I kept, um, you know, kept wanting to find out what was next, like a good movie. So both those plays are, um, are playing now uh, until April 2nd. The last 15 seconds is at the, the Fire Hall. And Evelyn Strange is at the Havana. And that's fun because you can uh, you can have a drink after the show or even dinner if you are so inclined. I recommend the ceviche. Uh, it's quite nice with uh, with uh, grapefruit flavoring. Anyway, flavoring. Gee, that sounds fake. Um, real grapefruit. Okay, let's uh, let's move on with the show. Oh yeah, and one thing I have to add about Evelyn Strange is that on last week's interview, I <laughs> I uh, I committed a, a Roman numeral fail. Which is to say that the the folks putting on the show, um, the company is is Staircase XI, which is Staircase Eleven in Roman numerals, and I said six on last week's show, and um, so so um, I got some mail uh, to to correct me on my Roman numerology. Um, so apologies for that. It's Staircase XI. Okay, I'm not even gonna go there and make anything Roman about it. All right, so let's get on with the show. Uh, okay, the Canadian Individual National Poetry Slam is coming soon, and Slam UBC will be selecting their representative on April 6th at Kerner's Pub. It will feature some of the best spoken word artists from the UBC campus and Vancouver area, as well as a duo called the Two Dope Boys in a Cadillac. These guys don't just do poems on random subjects, no. Johnny McRae and Shane Avekigrek have created an entire epic mythology which describes their humble beginnings on a marijuana farm in rural BC as well as their fleeing there from the law and winding up here in the city which they describe as being, quote, rife with the decay of humanity, end quote. Their mission, to speak out about the coming anthropocalypse that's right, Anthropocalypse, and share their old Cadillac Mountain folk stories. So Johnny McRae came to CITR, and we explored what he's calling a talk opera. Here he is to get us started explaining the term Anthropocalypse. The Anthropocalypse is a, is a um, sort of a term that the folks in the Cadillac Mountains were had, we'd learned from them, because uh, although our families had been there for, uh, we weren't, I mean, we never really figured out how long, but um, it was sort of something that was part of the original reason why they ended up in the Cadillac Mountains was that they had to. Oh, they anticipated this anthropocalypse mm-hmm. was coming, and so they so they were escaping. They were the, escaping the inevitable. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and, and all of this stuff will kind of uh, feature throughout. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's almost like a. It makes me think of like a rock opera, but kind of like a word. Well, that's uh, that's the talk opera <laughs> aspect. Talk opera, thank so you. So we're, like... we're that was we were trying to figure out. Initially, we were calling it a, a rock opera, and then we were just like, well, really, it's a talk opera. Um, <laughs> so we're we're working out what that means exactly, but yeah. we're that's the direction for sure. Which I imagine is sort of the 
idea of slam poetry is that it's um, kind of theatrical and dramatic mm-hmm. and takes word, spoken word, into a much more um, sort of bombastic uh, realm. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you? How did you find it? How did you get into? Um, I have been writing for a long time, and I was doing English honors at UBC, and I was doing these seminars and writing all these short little poems that were very, you know, academic and uh, okay. full of symbols, and no one would ever understand Automatopoeia. Them. Exactly. Alliteration. Yeah. Oh, no, you don't use those. Those, <laughs> those are too crass, you know? Like, you don't, can't use obvious, uh, obvious poetic wow. things these days. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, you know, I was sitting there, and I was just frustrated with everything I was writing. I was like, no one would care about this if i put it out right now no one would ever care and uh i actually took a year off writing and i had some friends who were doing the slam one of them a former ubc student uh, nora smith eisler had been on the team for uh three straight years as a national canadian champion that sort of thing and and uh we just met out here and she was doing slam and then my friend sasha was coaching improv at the time and she was also doing slam and so between the two of them that got me into it and i actually took a year off school specifically just to start doing spoken word and uh started going to slams and then the second slam i competed in i uh accidentally won um, like that's the other way. Yeah, like I was like, okay, yeah, I'm in it. I'm in it to compete, but at the same time, I was like not expecting to win. Sure. And uh, that got me into the playoffs. And then I got fourth in the semifinals, which got me into the finals. And I got fourth in the finals, which got me on the team. Yeah, sure. So you're hooked. I was hooked. And since yeah. then, I've been. You know, you go to these festivals, and there's like 300 poets, or even just 100 poets, and you're just like, uh, I feel like I'm home. So. Mm. Um, it became a, a huge part of that, and a recognition that you know, with with spoken word, with poetry generally, um, you're not limited in what you can say and how you can say it. Yeah, um, I cover a lot of you know, sort of sociological, historical, gender studies related subjects. Um, the poem that really got me started is called "I Love My Vagina," and it came from watching uh, the vagina monologues, and. Um, I was like, these aren't things I can really talk about in day-to-day class. Or if I do, I have to write like a 10-page paper, and <laughs> I could probably say it better in three minutes uh, than I can in, you know, 10 pages of mm-hmm. argumentation and this and that, and blah, blah, blah. Like, so mm-hmm. it's just always been a more natural way of communicating for me and uh, something I became very passionate about and something I'm very big on orality versus literacy and and those sorts of technological shifts and so finding this community of people that is uh, you know I guess in the technical term like a secondarily oral community like there it's a return to orality but it's within a literate environment Um, it's a it was just very refreshing you know people are very engaged and there's something that happens to most people when they come to a spoken word event and they realize because most people go there they don't know what's happening mm-hmm. and then you go to a slam <laughs> and you think oh I'm going for this crazy night of entertainment and suddenly you've got poetry and uh, <laughs> like that's basically kind of what we're doing is being like yeah come out and watch us do poetry it'll be fun right, right, um, right. and it's uh, and people go you know I didn't know this could be we do high school workshops and the students come out of it being like I thought poetry sucked mm-hmm. but I see that it's actually you know kind of cool um they might not tell us that directly because they're teenagers, but, you know, their teachers afterwards are like, the kids were stoked, you know, they actually <laughs> liked that. They don't like most things, so that was cool. <laughs> they hate everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's something there that's happening when you have that physical space, and that just immediately drew me right in. I wish I had a teacher that said, the kids are stoked! Um, okay, that's Johnny McRae telling us about uh, Slam, Slam UBC event coming up 
on uh, Wednesday, April 6th at uh, Kerner's uh, Pub. Now, before Johnny left, we had to uh, pin him down and uh, make sure he gave us uh, uh, a poem. And what better than the one that he mentioned in an interview there, uh, the one entitled, I Love My Vagina. And he said, this is the one, I asked him, do you, do you have a poem for us that we can, that we can broadcast uh, on the air? And he says, yes, yes, I have this one called I Love My Vagina. And I said, well, that's just perfect, because if you've been following uh, the Arts Report over the last few, uh, few weeks, uh, a certain vagina theme has been emerging over the last uh, little while. Um, it started when we had the vagina monologues. Uh, on campus at UBC, and uh, we had an interview uh, about it. And in the intro to that interview, I said, I mentioned how it's very interesting that the word uh, vagina seems to have a certain stigma around it that the word penis and all its other forms don't seem to have in our society. You know, we throw around um, uh, words for penis uh, around all the time, but when it comes to vagina, there's like an odd, like, whoa, you can't say that. And then and then, so that was the first thing. And then a few weeks ago, I was on iTunes looking through the, the list of arts reports. And the one with the vagina monologues, the word vagina was, was bleeped out on iTunes. iTunes doesn't want you to see the word vagina. And I thought that was crazy. And it makes me want to find uh, on iTunes if the word penis is similarly blocked out. Like, these are parts of our anatomy. How can, they be, how can iTunes be censoring uh, basic anatomy. I think it's crazy. Anyway, so I thought it was very fitting that uh, Johnny wants to share uh, a poem about uh, about the vagina. And you know what? We're gonna write. We're gonna write all about it in the listing for this podcast, and we'll see how many times we can bleep out. How many times iTunes will bleep out the word? Anyway, but enough about all that. Um, here's Johnny McRae and his uh, little introduction and subsequent uh, recital of "I Love My Vagina." All right. So I wrote this after Vagina Monologues, and it became clear to me that I needed to perform it when I met a woman at, at the 98B line. I was standing at the front of the line before the before the line got, before that was all dispersed, before the 98 ceased to exist. Um, and she came up to me, I had a, I heart my vagina pin on, because it was like a week after the, the V-Day. And she, uh, she just goes, I really like your pin. And I turned, and I was like, well, thanks. You know, I like to think that my genitals are an inverted version of a woman's. And she said, uh, I don't think you need to go that far. And I was like, well, you know, I think it brings us all closer together. And then she d turned around and walked to the back of the lineup. So I um, refused to acknowledge my existence later on. So uh, I've always hoped that someday she's going to hear this poem. And that was really one of the big moments of performance. So. I love my vagina. Even though others often laugh at it because I've only half the normal nerve endings inside my clit. Even though my ovaries hang slack slinging around beneath my uteral stack. I love my vagina. With its little lips puckered up, its precision aim and sense of direction, its love of being buttered up, its love of play, of making connections. Yes, I love my vagina, and my vagina loves me. It knows what I want, and I know what it needs, as with its head raised, with a friendly wink, with an eye to appraise, and its hot swollen pink, with its puckered lips kissing, dizzy from the blood rush, my clit, my cunt, other cunts, would touch. 
Perhaps just a handshake, or a few friendly words, or a long night spent sleepless while love is a verb till we cease to commune with a smile or a swoon, our vagina lips smiling having danced for the moon. But while I love my vagina, not all vaginas love it. Some call it a cock and can't see it's a clit. Call my ovaries balls, which is ridiculous. Just cause it hangs out, cause my clit's gigantic. Just cause it dangles, cause it's prone to panic. Just cause it looks different, they call it a dick. But it's no less a vagina for being my man bit. And this isn't psychology, it's straight up biology. You see, before we were born, before we took shape, before our genitals formed and our brains rearranged, before we were torn between hormone traits, we embodied one love and hate didn't gestate. But then some people, well, they learn fear and start talking gender dysphoria. But people, what I got is gender euphoria. So I love my vagina to my heart. To my core, I love my vagina, and I hope you love yours. Yeah, that's Johnny McRae with "I Love My Vagina." Um, yeah, what? There's nothing, you know. There's nothing to add to that. It was just amazing, and I loved it. Um, Johnny McRae and Shane Avecki Grek are the two dope boys in a Cadillac, and they will be there at Kerner's Pub on Wednesday, April the sixth. And you can catch all of that excitement for uh, for free, really, as long as you can find Kerner's Pub, which is sixty three seventy one Crescent Road at UBC. Don't worry, you can find the link from our website, citr.ca. And you can click on Kerner's Pub and it'll give you the link. It's a bit tucked away in the Graduate Student Society building, which is what makes it cool because it looks like a regular office, you, you know, a university office. And then, hey, there's a pub down here. Um, and they're talking about vaginas. Oh, my God. Um, so check that out. Now we are going to take a short uh, break. And when we return, we'll tell you about uh, brave new playwrights. And we'll also tell you about uh, later in the show. I wanted to let you know that we'll... Um, We'll have uh, Megan, Megan Thomas from Discorder will be here to give us a review, a little back and forth, if you will, about uh, Cigar Box uh, Banjo. And we're going to give tickets away to uh, brave new playwrights. So definitely stay tuned for that. To be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous... Or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them to die, to sleep no more. UBC's creative writing program and theatre department are proud to present the 25th annual Brave New Playwrights Festival. Brave New Playwrights is a theatre festival featuring 13 short plays penned by UBC creative writing students, plus a pair of staged readings. It all goes down at the Dorothy Somerset Studio, March 30th to April 3rd. Showtime is 8pm with a 2pm matinee Sunday. The staged readings are Saturday at 2. For schedules, tickets and more information, visit bravenew.ca.
Okay, that's an ad for Brave New Playwrights, which we want to give you tickets to as soon as this interview is done. That's right. When this interview that you hear is finished, that is your chance to call in and get tickets for tomorrow, Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Dorothy Somerset uh, place. Um, so stay tuned for that. Get your dialing fingers ready. I'll even give you the phone number now, just so you have it. It's 604-822-2487. 604-822-2487. But first, don't call now. If that phone rings, you know I'm going to jump, and it'll freak me out. Okay. Brave New Playwrights brings together creative writers at UBC with actors, directors, and technicians to produce a festival of short plays. They've been doing this for 25 years now, and this year's festival will once again provide an amazing opportunity for playwrights to produce their works, as well as a great opportunity for performers and us audiences to see and hear young and local perspectives, and not just that stodgy old British and American stuff that we're forced to see. So Claire Middleton, a festival producer and a featured playwright, came to our studios and we talked about the huge diversity of themes and subjects. But first I asked Claire about the unusual privilege for actors to have the playwright right there. Working on a new piece is totally different than working on like Shakespeare or something that yeah, you, know, you like, can't call up. No, really. you can't be like, What why this? You know? <laughs> yeah. Like what was that choice about? Yeah. And some of those questions, I think, are really good for for the playwrights too. I would imagine. Well, definitely, they're good. they're they're very good for the playwrights. So, um, it all the way sort of con- conceiving it all together is is the big the big challenge. And and I, yeah, and for the playwrights, um, I imagine some revision happens. Oh, huge once. revisions! Yeah, like well, you know, and each each play is different. Each person is different, but uh, you know, some people. Some people are really good at revising. I'm not very good at revising, no. but some people are awesome at it. And um, we'll do like 30 drafts, and they're okay with that. You know, like they'll, right. they just go over it and go over it and go over it. And there was in the directing class, um, we had dramaturgical sessions where all the directors and a lot of the playwrights would sit down and talk about, you know, like the workshop sort of format, except um, except with the directors. So that was really good too to mm-hmm. sit around with all like theater people and mm-hmm. and and dig into to you know usually it was about the first or second draft of of the of the play. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Now let's backtrack a little and uh, give us a sense of uh, what this uh, festival is all about. Well, it's a short play festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, so m- the plays are about 15 minutes long. Some are shorter, some are a couple minutes longer. Um, but, uh, and there's 13 plays and it's been going for 25 years. This is its wow. 25th anniversary. And uh, Brian Wade, the uh, the head of the creative creative writing program, he's actually been there for all twenty five years. So wow. <laughs> that blows my mind. Yeah. So um, yeah, and so it's really just a chance to see um, these short plays realized. Mm-hmm. And also, there's a lot of designers that work on it too. Oh, really? There's um, you know costume designers, lighting designers, set designers, sound. Uh, there's even some composition like people composing stuff for the festival so music for the festival um projections so there's a little bit of all all aspects of theater in there so Mm -hmm. speaking of all encompassingness i imagine the themes of the the plays are all over the map yeah like completely (laughs) there's no there's no through line like sometimes with a festival like you'll see with like femfest or 
um, there's different, you know, like it has to be about something. It has to be like Have the, a theme of something. Yeah, some kind. this, no, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah, I was at the dress rehearsal last night, and I'm going tonight to the other one. And, um, and there, you know, there's sort of allegorical plays, then there's like, there's plays that are, you know, pretty raunchy. Um, there's uh, really touching father-son type situations, and then there's really, really funny stuff. And you know, beyond beyond anything you can imagine, that everybody just sat down and decided to come up with these plays. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us about your show. Um, my show is called uh, Lowercase Love in a Two-Man Tent, <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's about a couple who are camping after a wedding, like they've been out to a wedding and... The, the, and uh, but they, they're not the ones getting married. No, right. No, they were attending a wedding. Yeah, they were attending a wedding. Although the the bride and groom are in a tent, not too far okay. away from them. And um, this is a honeymoon camping trip kind of thing. Well, yeah, yeah, sort of, just sort of a little bit of a hippie wedding, you know. <laughs> and um, they d- haven't known each other that long, but they've decided to move in and. Uh, just sort of, you know, when camping, you get to know people a little bit better. Uh, so they Perhaps come to more some, than you. Yeah, they come <laughs> to some realizations. Uh, it, yeah. So the it explores the, the sort of themes of uh, relationships and... and, and yeah, um, getting to closeness. know people. Yeah, getting to know people. Yeah. And I guess... Uh, yeah, a campsite would be good, a good place yeah. for the, that to happen. Generally, I feel <laughs> like you should always travel with someone before you live with them because you can probably get a good uh, idea whether you know whether that will work or not. Um, and sometimes at weddings, people do weird things. So you know, put all those things together. Yeah, <laughs> good recipe for a play. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what have you? What's one thing that you've taken from this process of having your work uh, being brought to life by human beings? Well, having the chance to work with some of the like John Cooper um, is the the directing advisor, mm-hmm. and he's just amazing direct director. And so having his brain work on my play and and same thing with Brian Wade and and all the other people that uh like the directors and the playwrights and even the designers that have been sort of thinking about the play um has been wonderful and then of course the actors come up with stuff but what about this but what about this and that's so good it's so good to have a spot where people can ask those questions um and I can be right there to answer them um and have some fun with it you mm-hmm. know? yeah Great. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd want to mention? Um, there's also a stage reading, which is which is really fun if you've never been to a stage reading before. Uh, some people, I know they've sort of they they were really popular a long time ago, but um, I like them almost as much as going to a lo- like a fully realized play because your brain gets to work on it. Is this for one particular? Uh, there's two plays. Mm-hmm. Um, there's it's um, Wade Kinley's Black Box and. Um, and Fortinbras, and they uh, hire professional actors to come in and read them. They work on them for a whole day, uh, and that's on Saturday, and it's free, so uh, it's really fun. Yeah, yeah, can't be free. No, no, <laughs> and they've worked on them. They've done like lots of the text work, so you know, there's not people moving around, but it's still really really engaging mm-hmm. to watch and listen to. So Almost yeah. like a campfire story time. Kind yeah, of <laughs> yeah, except with people playing different parts, you yeah. know, and mm-hmm, so Great. that's that's fun. Thanks very much. Thank you.
And that's Claire Middleton telling us about Brave New Playwrights, which begins today and continues until April the 3rd, which is a Sunday. Tonight is the opening night. And we'd like to give you tickets for tomorrow night's uh, performance. Uh, regularly, tickets are $10 uh, and $15. And you can get more information on them at either our website, citr.ca, there's a link there, or just go to bravenew.ca, www.bravenew.ca. All right, so now is the time to call if you want those tickets for tomorrow night's uh, Brave New Playwrights. Uh, and the number to call is 604-822-2487. That's 604 822 2487. So give us a ring ding. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll tell you about how uh, bipolar disorder is connected to creativity. That is to say, a lot of creative people uh, have it, and perhaps that's what makes them uh, creative. And so there's an examination and celebration of uh, that that's coming in the next couple of days. Plus, we'll get a book review on Cigar Box Banjo. So, uh, so, so stay with us and call us for those, uh, for those tickets, 604-822-2487. Are you interested in radio but not quite sure how to get involved? CITR is the place for you. We are a volunteer-driven campus and community radio station with a variety of volunteer opportunities. Want to become an on-air programmer? Learn about promotions? Maybe become a news or arts reporter? Come learn about all the ways you can become involved at CITR. Volunteer orientations are held on the first Monday of every month at 6.30 p.m. If the first Monday falls on a statutory holiday, the orientation moves to the second Monday. Visit citr.ca for more information. Bipolar disorder is, well, a disorder. But can, also be, can it also be a good thing? A research group called the Collaborative Research Team at... Sorry, Research Team to Study Psychosocial Issues in Bipolar Disorder, there we go, or CREST-BD, that's better, thinks it can be. That's because while over half a million Canadians have what used to be called manic depression, 80% of them consider creativity to be one of its benefits. So Crest BD is exploring this creative connection with a trifecta of events, including a community discussion called Touched with Fire or Burnt Out, Igniting a Dialogue, as well as a film screening and a music concert. Our support correspondent, Sarah Lapsley, brings this story to us, and she spoke to UBC Department of Psychiatry's Dr. Aaron Mihalik, who is also the head of Crest BD. And here she is explaining what uh, Crest BD's area of focus is. We focus on looking at psychological and social factors in relation to BD. So, for example, we know that um, medications are very important for many people to live, to live well with this condition, but we also know that factors such as getting the right amount of sleep, routine, having good friends and family, a good social support system, uh, having meaning in life, a good work environment, things such as this are all important to good quality of life in this condition. So despite the current view that this is a severe and chronic mental illness, the research you, you have done has offered some hope that people can live well with bipolar disorder if they take good care of themselves mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. that, that's a good point because I think the prevailing uh, theory is that bipolar disorder is a chronic, very severe 
um, very dangerous in terms of suicide rates condition. Um, and it is for some people. It is a very severe condition for some. But um, I think that it's also very important to get the message out there that many, many people live well with bipolar disorder um, and have high quality of life and have great professions and are very successful and achieve many of the life goals that they want. And I think there's a danger perhaps in over-pathologizing this condition or um, or giving people the message um, that isn't instilled with hope. Mm-hmm. And one of the potential benefits of bipolar disorder is that there seems to be a link between people that are highly creative and that have bipolar disorder. So you were saying in an artistic population, something like 10%, up to 10% of people may have bipolar disorder. Yeah, there's one study out there that looked at manic-type symptoms or people who would meet criteria for a manic syndrome. And uh, 10% of that population of artists and musicians met that those, those criteria. So it does seem to be that there's a relationship we might call it a putative or a theoretical relationship between bipolar disorder and creativity. Many people with bipolar disorder have creative outputs and many highly creative people, highly recognized creative people, have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. This is including musicians like Jimi Hendrix, um, artists or actors like Vivian Lee, Carrie Fisher, uh, musicians like Robbie Williams, the list goes on and on. It goes on through history, um, and more and more people now are self-disclosing that they do live with, with BD. However, although we've recognized that this li- there is this link between creativity and this particular condition, the research in this area has been pretty poor to date. Most of what we know is anecdotal, or uh, the studies haven't been as well designed as we would like them. So this is why my team is really starting to focus uh, its research in this area. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the research team that you've put together. Well, CRESPD is a bit different in that First of all, it's what we would call multidisciplinary. It's not just made up of just psychologists or just psychiatrists. We recognize that many different people in many different professions have many different types of expertise. Um, One kind of expertise that we really prioritize and think is important is what we would call lived experience expertise. So that's knowledge that people gain from living with this condition on a day-to-day basis and their family members and also their clinicians as well. So members of our team have bipolar disorder and they work with us as co-researchers, as team members and are really involved in every part of our research process. The other thing that makes us a bit bit different, perhaps, is that we have a very strong focus on resiliency, on staying well with bipolar disorder, on the perhaps more positive aspects of the condition, rather than a very heavy focus on pathology or illness or what brings people back into hospital. Another good thing about your uh, Crest BD research team, and that's the collaborative research team to study psychosocial issues in bipolar disorder, is that not only do you publish many academic papers, but also you're very involved in translating that knowledge back to the bipolar community. And so you've got some events coming up. 
could you talk to me about those? We do have some events coming up, and we're really excited about them this year. Every year, well, since we formed um, in 2007, every year we've held what we would call a community consultation day, and this is focused on different topics. So one year we focused on recovery and what that means to people with bipolar disorder. Another year we focused on stigma. And we decide what we're going to look at in the next year um, on the basis of what people are telling us um, is important to them when they live with bipolar disorder. And a message we've had very clearly over the years is that people in the community want to see more research on this relationship between creativity and BD. We knew, however, when we designed our events this year that we would have to get a bit creative ourselves in order to create the right kind of contexts with, within which to consult with people. We're really interested in talking to musicians, artists, performers, designers, um, people who are living well with bipolar disorder in highly creative professions. Um, and I think probably if we were designing traditional studies or using traditional kind of scientific methods, uh, we would have a hard time accessing this group and getting them to come and tell us about their experiences. So what we did was try to design a series of three events that are, were a bit different and might attract different types of people. So on March 31st in downtown Vancouver, we have the first of the events. This one has been spearheaded by Bruce Saunders. He's a team member of ours who lives in Victoria and for nearly 20 years now has run something called Monday Movie Nights there. Um, he's screening one documentary and two film shorts, each of which deal with people who live with bipolar disorder but are also highly creative and what that means for them. Um, and there's a chance for the community to get involved and engage in that process and that there will be a post-screening discussion afterwards and a chance for us to hear from audience members. So that's a free event open to everybody. The next day we're doing our consultation day on UBC campus. We hire uh, Cecil Green House, a beautiful old historic building. Um, on that day we're focusing on getting just people with bipolar disorder who are creative together with Crestbeady team members. Uh, we sit down for the day, and in the morning we run some focus groups, start to explore the, the issues, uh, we have a, a nice lunch, and then in the afternoon we have some short presentations and some group brainstorming sessions to continue to explore this topic. Um, and we're doing this a bit differently this year in that as well as audio recording and taking notes from those sessions, we're using something called graphic facilitation, whereby we have two artists coming in who, um, as you're going through the group discussions, try and capture the content of the discussions visually. And then we then take that different kind of output and put it on the Crest website afterwards so that perhaps in that way we can tailor the kind of ways we're giving back to the community and providing information back to people about what went on in the day. Well, thank you, Dr. Mahalik, and you do wonderful work, and best wishes with that. Thank you. Thanks. And that's Sarah Lapsley. Thanks to her for bringing us this story. Um, interesting to think, uh, as I was listening to this interview, I was like, sometimes I wonder if I have bipolar disorder, especially when the phone rings when it's not supposed to ring. I, I get very first manic, and then I get depressed. Is that, uh, is, that, is that offside, a joke about that? Well, show? Yeah, it probably is. Sorry about that. But uh, no, but, but uh, joking aside, I do sometimes wonder, and I think we all do. I think we all, uh, you know, where's the dividing line between having 
regular ups and downs? Like, what is a regular up and down, and what is bipolar? Where, when is it so extreme? Where's the dividing line where it becomes so extreme that um, you are you have a disorder? You're not just a regular person who, you know, had a bad day, so you feel crummy, or you feel really good because something good has happened. Well, maybe you can explore uh, these issues by going to the Community Consultation Day. How about that for a segue? On April the 1st uh, at 4 p.m., Community Consultation Day at Cecil Green Park House at, uh, at UBC. Uh, registration is required, limited capacity. Also, March uh, 31st, there's a film screening, and that's going to be at the Gold Corp Center for the Arts at SFU, and that's a free event. That's 7 p.m., uh, March 31st, so that's tomorrow. And also on April the 1st at 8 p.m., there's a musical performance night, and that's at the Chapel Arts Center. It's a 19-plus event, uh, free entry or by donation, which is great. So a lot of free things and a lot of food for thought about bipolar disorder. So check, uh, check that out. You can get uh, more info on our website, citr.ca, or go to crestbd.ca, crestbd.ca. All right, we're going to take uh, a short break, but still on the show, we're going to have a review of Cigar Box Banjo with Discorder Magazine's Megan Thomas. So stay with us. This just in... Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock, CITR 101.9 FM presents Cabba Radio. Join host Teddy Smooth as he explores the chimerical, the hysterical, the phantasmagorical world of burlesque and cabaret. Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock, CITR 101.9 FM brings you Cabba Radio. Hey, you're listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming online at citr.ca. We're also available as a podcast every week. It goes up Wednesday nights and is ready for your uh, viewing pleasure. You can subscribe to it so that it shows up in your mailbox, whether you, are, uh, remember, whether you remember to get it and download it or not. And you can do that uh, from our blog, citr.ca. So check it out. We love to have uh, subscribers to the show. Uh, before we get on with the review of uh, Cigar Box Banjo, I want to tell you about uh, tomorrow night's 30 Live. 30 Live is a weekly exposition of local Vancouver music that happens uh, on the Granville Strip at uh, the Forum Sports Bar, which is 1163 Granville. That's about Helmkin. And um, it's a lot of fun. Every week, uh, the kids come out and have uh, a good moshy Mushy pit good time. So if you're looking for something to do tomorrow night where you can kind of, um, you know, shake your head, have a couple of drinks, and enjoy uh, cool local bands, up-and-coming uh, local bands, we wanted to uh, give you a little preview of what's going to be playing uh, the musical stylings you will be hearing tomorrow night. Uh, so uh, this is Paolo Bryan. Uh, who will be featured, Paolo, Brian, and the Steam Clocks. And this song is called Follow Your Heart.
And that's Paolo Bryan, uh, who will be at 30 Live tomorrow night at the Forum, 1163 Granville Street. Uh, the night festivities begin at 8 p.m., and I believe the bands go up at 9, um, and I believe it's like 10 bucks, 12 bucks. Sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but it's uh, very affordable and uh, a good night out every Thursday, every single Thursday. They're on Facebook, by the way. All you have to type in is uh, 30 colon live, and you will find it. Um, it's funny that, that today's show has had a literary theme because I, apparently I can't speak English because um, I was talking about the podcast being there for your viewing pleasure. And um, any, any child will tell you that you can't see podcasts. You can't uh, see sound. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Megan's shaking her head at me. Depends on what drugs you're taking. What, what's that? Depends on what drugs you're taking sometimes. If you're on enough LSD, yeah, then you, then you could. I'm just going to adjust your, uh, your thing here. Ooh, that sounded <laughs> difficult. All right, um, so obviously Megan Thomas is here. Hello. And we're going to talk about this book, Cigar Box Banjo. The contemporary history of the Canadian music scene is the subject matter of this book, and it's about to come out on paperback mm-hmm. by Paul Quarrington, who was an award-winning fiction writer and musician. 
He was the lead singer and guitarist for the blues roots country ensemble Pork Belly Futures, and in the book talks about his relationship with music as a listener and a musician, including after being diagnosed with lung cancer in 2009, which he subsequently died from in January of this year. Is that true? It's very sad. Indeed. And um, but before we get into that, um, you've. You, you would describe this as uh, a book written by a cool dad. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, a very cool dad, a rock and roll dad. Um, there's definitely a generation gap for me reading this. Uh, it was uh, a great read, lots of interesting music trivia, lots of instrumental trivia. I learned a lot, but his references sometimes and what he uses as examples of great songwriting can be a little corny, um, and his well, phrasing... And one of those phrases is... Muck-mucks. Uh, Muck-mucks. Like, no what a bunch of muck-mucks. No one says that. The only way I know muck-muck is, uh, is that mascot for the Olympics. <laughs> muck-muck. So I didn't even know you could use that. It's probably owned by the Olympic people now, and this you will get sued. This is the Arts Report. You need to... We're going to get sued here at the yeah. Arts Report. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Sorry anyway, about that. Sorry, sorry. But you were saying a generation gap. Yeah, it, it's just... It was a little before my time. Um, but this is definitely a book I would give my dad and he would really love. Because he's a cool dad. <laughs> That's kind of a sad recommendation. I would, I would give this to my dad for Christmas. He reads books. Okay. You know. Okay, well now we've got to redeem this guy. Um, uh, what, uh, what makes it valuable to read for a younger person than your dad? Well, I think there is a universal quality to a lot of his anecdotes. Uh, he talks about hard drinking. He talks about uh, a lot of experiences on the road. He talks about his inspirations as a as a youngster. So I think those are going to be relatable to a lot of people, both in and outside of music, mm-hmm. um, and in show business, probably in general. And mm-hmm. at the very, you know, as the as the book progresses, he talks about following his passion through hard times, and I think anyone can really relate to that. That's and, cool. Yeah, leaning on your friends and family, all sorts of good stuff. So universal stuff for any age. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, so we, we now that we've redeemed him, let's knock him back down. Um, What's another example of this this uh, generational uh, gap? Well, um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'd have to say that a lot of his references, especially when it comes to TV, I mean, he was born in 1953, right. I think. So a lot of his references to TV and, and, and things. But I think that, that's... And to musicians and to just sort of cultural references? Yeah, but that's his own life. So I think he's speaking from his own experiences. But I just, it, I had a lot of Wikipedia that I had to do. <laughs> Okay, and tell us uh, any Vancouver connections because uh, he's uh, he's from Toronto, or yeah, he's or, from Toronto. Yeah, he's from the southern Ontario region, and um, so um, any references to the Vancouver music scene? Um, <laughs> only one, unfortunately. Um, I don't know what the scene was exactly like back then, but apparently not really worth mentioning. Um, yeah, the book <laughs> in general focuses on eastern Canada, Toronto. I mean, he's from the surrounding suburbs. Um, a lot on the east coast, which is really interesting. But um, the do, only... Do you have a little quote for us? Yes, I do. Um, so here's a little excerpt, um, and he's talking about uh, heading uh, on tour and what that's like, and it's Vancouver. And, uh, and it holds the lovely phrase, muck mucks, which we love so much. <laughs> Let's hear the muck mucks. So, we were in Vancouver playing a very nice club, the name of which escapes me, and someone had managed to convince a group of musical muckmucks to come. Martin and I had drinks the following day at Hotel Europa, an establishment shaped like a big wedge of cheese. It was near where we were staying, the Dominion, in Gastown. These days, Hotel Europa is a heritage building, and Gastown is historic. Can you hear those scare quotes there? Mm. Even the Dominion is historic. When we stayed there, it was just one of many cheap hotels. 
We used to refer to its rooms designed with the smoker in mind because the most prominent furnishing beyond the bed and an ancient night table was an ashtray. It was a cheap hotel rooms that I began writing my novels. I performed a little trick Joe Hall had taught me. I don't know who that is, so That's I had okay. to Wikipedia it. Taking, taking out the night table's top drawer, overturning it, and shoving it partially back into the runner so that it functioned as a crude desk. I would then take my typewriter out of its case and set it down. It was a sturdy machine rendered from gunmetal and looked as if it had been taken behind enemy lines many times by its former owner and alcoholic war correspondent. Hmm. So I get what you mean about the, you know, the muckmucks and the sort of dated references, but he does have a, a way with words, yeah? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, he has this real combination of flair and, and kind of colloquialism that, yeah, it's really, it's really readable. Okay. Now, we mentioned in the intro that he had cancer and eventually passed away mm-hmm. very, very recently. Um, does does the his struggle with cancer factor into the book? Absolutely. I mean, like I mentioned before, following your passion through hard times and using it to really keep your life worth living um, and to really live it to the fullest is one of the main, I guess, lessons you could say of the book. Okay. Um, apparently he was already writing this memoir when he got the news, mm-hmm. and so he inserted that thematic material, he calls it, uh, into the book. And you can kind of tell that he's kind of squished these anecdotes into the this The thematic mold. material is things yeah. that he's squished in to something that he'd already written. But it, yeah. it does definitely give a new kind of urgency to it. Now, um, before you read this, I see that you're getting ready to read this quote. Yeah, there is one so word ready. in here that um, when we were talking about this uh, before we went on air, there's one word in that that's very difficult. Are you going to be okay I'm saying really that word? I really don't think I'm going to be able to, it's, but feel free to call in and <laughs> reprimand Adam for having <laughs> yeah. me on live. Yeah, call me and shock me with the phone ringing as it did an hour ago. Um, I believe it's uulation. Um, it has to be. I can't think of another way. Uulation. I think so. Do you so. want to practice that a little? Uulation. Nice. Ah. Okay. All right. I think do we're it ready. live. We'll do it live. Okay, go for it. The bluffs are also associated in my mind with the death. I don't believe that this was at the forefront of my mind as I drove there on D-Day or Diagnosis Day. But throughout my childhood, I heard stories of people meeting their end on the bluffs, either by suicide or when a part of the cliffside suddenly collapsed. A very popular art teacher at my high school lived on the bluffs. His young daughter was standing close to the edge one day when the earth disappeared from beneath her feet, and she was gone. So maybe this was leading me down to the bluffs on some level. It seemed a place to go to begin battle with the darkness, or to begin negotiations with might be more accurate. Various species of birds inhabit the Scarborough Bluffs, evolution having brought them to this particular place of endless bickering and squawking. Any scrap of food is the epicenter of convergence of ungodly screech and uluation. Wings are beaten menacingly, necks ruffled. The only relatively quiet species is the swan. These elegant creatures maintain their silence for the same reason the crazed and homicidal do, to keep their victims unsuspecting and unprepared. I mention this because, having driven down the huge hill and left the car in the lot, I stumbled out to the shore and bawled like a baby. Not nonstop, but every minute or so I would emit a long wail of, oh, who knows what the emotion was at that point. The truest thing to say would be that it wasn't a single emotion. It was quite a few of them stumbling into each other to get out, like drunkards in a doorway. And in the midst of all this, a swan snuck up behind me and bit me on the ass. I was, of course, very indignant, but the creature had a point. Get on with it. I started back to my car and made my first resolution. No more cheap wine. We held an impromptu wake. Nice. All right, so uh, we are out of time, but give us a quick, uh, what, what do you say about this? Good, bad, ugly, um, what is it? Compliment sandwich. Uh, it's really interesting material. Um, 
it should have been a book of essays, and I wanted more of the personal Canadiana, unless there's a lot of textbook stuff in here that you can just skip about Bob Dylan and, you know, blues, if you already are familiar with it. Mm-hmm. But in the end, yeah, it's a moving story, and um, imperfect as it is, it's it's very readable, and you really get to know, feel like you get to know the person. There's a great introduction by the guy who wrote The Commitments, mm-hmm. and if you, if you love music movies, that's one of the best. So, yeah, no, it was an enjoyable read, and, and I think that there's something in it for everyone. Awesome. Thank you to Megan uh, for that. As thanks well as, for having me. Yes. And also thanks to Sarah and Anna who brings this show to you this week. We thank you for watching this radio program and uh, we hope you join us uh, next Wednesday at 5 p.m. for another exciting edition of the Arts Report. You can subscribe to our podcast at CITR.ca. We're also on Twitter. Uh, if you look up CITR underscore Arts Report, you'll find us there. This is CITR 101.9 FM and Discorder Radio is next. Bye-bye. Hello, welcome to the next episode of the Discorder Show. Today is Wednesday, March 30th, and your host is Ryan speaking to you right now. I am sitting here, as usual, alongside my co-host, Pensa. Hi, Ryan's 